The Whale Podcast, episode 352. What is your name? Ken Middleton. Ken, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? Alcohol would be that. You and me both, brother. Although I was an equal opportunity user and abuser for sure. Without question, alcohol was my first love and my ultimate downfall. Yeah, alcohol was it for me, my one and only. Honestly, Charles, I was just too afraid of anything else, man. I was. I always tell people I didn't do any other drugs because I was afraid that if I did it, I was going to be that person that something crazy was going to happen. But alcohol, I knew I could handle that, but that it, it was enough for me, I'll tell you that. Well, I can relate to that on some level because I never did cocaine. And the reason I never did cocaine was when I was in high school, my younger brother, 18 months younger than me, who 99.9% of the time couldn't care less what I did, came home one day while I'm making a sandwich after school and he goes, Char, yeah, don't you ever, ever, and I mean ever, do cocaine. Oh, okay. Why? Because it makes you feel like God oh, for five minutes. And then all you want to do is that again and again and again. And he walked out of the room and it scared the living bejesus out of me. And I never did it. I never touched it. I was terrified because even at that young age, I knew myself just well enough to know that that's something I needed to stay far away from based on my compulsive tendencies. That's scary. I think for me, it was probably Lynn Bias. Even though Lynn was a little bit before me, I heard the Lynn Bias story where he did the cocaine and he ended up dying. And it just it just frightened me. I was like, I don't I, you make one small decision in the midst of let's have some fun and it affects the rest of your life. And I, I right. wanted no parts of it <laughs> at all. Yeah, I can relate to that on that level for sure. Ken, if you keep one, what is your clean and or sober date? Ele- uh, November the 10th, 2018. I got it tattooed on my stomach. That's a good way to keep track. <laughs> you n- will never forget. Sometimes I can't remember and I just look down and okay, there it is. That's it. <laughs> well, congratulations, brother, on four plus years. Yes. Yes. Of sobriety. That's a big deal. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been awesome for me. Ken, how do you serve the recovery community? Through my writing. That's what it's about. I think it's through my writing, Charles. And really, and we'll talk more as we get into it, wellness. It's about helping people understand that they can become the best version of themselves by giving up alcohol. So it's through my writing to hopefully give people the information they need to understand what alcohol is taken away from them and hopefully giving them something to even believe in themselves of the person that they could become. I love that. And so much of what recovery is to me today is increasingly becoming closer to the person I feel called to be. Absolutely. I love that. Fantastic. Exactly. And alcohol and other addictions were keeping me stuck. Mm-hmm. And yeah. recovery has unlocked so much. Arrested development. I tell people, even though I was yes. an adult, I was an adult. I didn't stop drinking until I was 38, Charles. I was an adult. 
Now that I look back on it, there were so many areas in my life, however, that I had did not fully mature until I stopped drinking. It's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely. Without question, Ken, I can, I can relate with that on an intimate level. I was a man child mm-hmm. in so many ways until I got sober. And then it was a really rapid, in some ways, progression of maturity and development and evolution. Yeah, we talked about Moore's Law right a little bit, right? It's like once you get an alcohol out of your system or any type of drug, cognitively, your brain, it heals itself quickly. Absolutely, no question. I got sober when I was 36, so you and I got sober around you know similar ages. So that's uh, that's an interesting piece. Last intro question, my friend: What does recovery mean to you? I think it, it definitely means what we're talking about, Charles. Uh, Charles, being giving yourself the opportunity to become the very best version of yourself. I tell people because uh, I was just thinking earlier today about alcohol and how one, it doesn't solve all your problems. And two, it's not the cause of all your problems either. Think about being the very best version of yourself. I don't believe in my heart of hearts that you can create that person with alcohol being in a consistent part of your life. So for me, it's about not drinking and then using that gift of sobriety and what I call alcohol consciousness to do things that you could have never done before and create a, a future for yourself that even one day you'll look back and be like, holy schmoly, I'm amazed at what I was able to accomplish. Absolutely. That's great. And I agree with that 100% that ultimately alcohol became such a big problem for me. I had really, I say no choice, but it seemed to me at that moment of desperation at my moment of desperation that I just never wanted to feel like I felt in that moment. And I was willing to do whatever it took in order to start getting better. And if that meant not drinking, then I was willing to do that. Mm. But that wasn't my priority. And I know it sounds a little odd, but I had tried to quit other times and the thing on my mind was I need to quit alcohol or I need to quit this substance or this behavior and it would never last. This last time, eight plus years ago, it was just 100%. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired and I didn't want to keep living the way that I was living anymore. And I was willing to do anything in order to start feeling better and becoming the person that I always felt like I could be. But at that time, right before I quit, it felt so far away. It felt so unattainable. But I was willing to just try something different. Well, what I realized was abstinence for me is required. Right. It's a requirement for me to be able to be the best version of myself I can be on a daily basis. But that's just the beginning, right? There's so much more. But I had to start at abstinence and then really start leaning into 
the tools and strategies and things I needed to do in order to truly recover. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I think you hit something on the nail there, Charles, it's around finding your why. Everyone has their own why for whatever reason. What is the impetus that's going to get the sobriety or alcohol consciousness to stick? And it's going to be personal for everyone. And it's just like really digging deep and then saying, okay, what do I want to become or what, how, how bad do I want X, Y, Z? And then if you think alcohol is causing you back, causing the, holding you back, which I would argue it does for a lot of people, then keeping that focus as the reason that you're going to give it up. So I feel you, my man. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, I'm delighted to bring you my interview with person in long-term recovery, wellness advocate, and author of the book Bamboozled, the guide to getting everything you want in life by giving up alcohol, Ken Middleton. Ken shares his journey to and through sobriety to this point with us in an exceptionally enlightening and inspiring fashion. For Ken, getting sober wasn't born out of debilitating alcoholism, leading to an ultra-low bottom of despair and hopelessness. No, Ken reckoned with his relationship with alcohol despite not having severe internal or external consequences, and essentially asked himself one big question. 
What would life look like if he didn't drink? Out of that question, an experiment was born, and Ken realized that though alcohol wasn't destroying his life in the classic crash-and-burn style, what Ken discovered was all the things alcohol was preventing him from being and doing. Said in another way, Ken had a remarkable realization. Alcohol was limiting him and was nothing short of blocking him from being the best version of himself. Ken's story is proof positive. We don't have to be in the depths of addiction in order to benefit from abstinence, sobriety, and recovery. We can ask ourselves questions similar to what Ken asked himself, such as, what could life be like if I didn't drink or use for a period of time? Ken suggests 90 days, but you choose the amount of time, and then do something we talk about often on this show. Run the experiment and see what happens. You may find you were more dependent on it than you thought, and your drinking or use was no mere habit. Or you may find that though perhaps you weren't dependent on it, alcohol or substances were acting like a governor on an old-school muscle car and keeping your potential pent up. Or you may find out something altogether different. The only way you'll find out is by running that experiment yourself. And might I suggest you take it in 24-hour segments at a time, saying, Self, I'm not going to drink and or use today. Then start engaging in a recovery and or wellness program and begin building a meaningful life filled with purpose as you become increasingly closer to the person you feel called to be. To that end, you'll find plenty of practical tools, insight, and inspiration in Ken's story, which is about to unfold before your very ears. So listen up. Ken Middleton, thank you so much, brother for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out Podcast. You are a person in long-term recovery. You're an author and you are a wellness advocate. And you're here with us on the Way Out Podcast to share your journey to and through recovery to this point, as well as about your book, Bamboozled. Before we get into any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. Great, absolutely. Thanks, Charles. Well, Ken Middleton, I, sometimes Kim McKimsey Middleton, I throw a middle name in there from time to time. The book, uh, uh, in the book, author of Bamboozle. Um, and for me, Charles, and I think I, we talked about this a little bit, my wellness journey or my alcohol conscious journey began because my life wasn't terrible with alcohol. Actually, my life was pretty good, to be honest, with alcohol, but it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. We talked about everyone has to have their why. You have to find, like, what is the impetus that gets you to stop alcohol? For me, it happened fortuitously because I left the company I was working at. I was trying my hand at being an entrepreneur. I was about a year and a half in and failing miserably. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was just really, really hard, really, really hard. And I looked at my then my now wife, then girlfriend at the time, and I said, you know what, babe, if, if I go back to corporate America, that's the decision I make, that's the decision I make. However, I don't want to go back having not been able to look myself in the mirror and say, I unequivocally gave it 100%. 
And I knew all the time, as we talked about before, potential alcoholics, even though I didn't think I had a problem with alcohol, quote unquote, per se, I knew that alcohol was something that didn't allow me to operate at 100 percent. It didn't allow me to be my best self. After the days that I drunk, I was a little hungover. I'm operating at 70s, 80 percent, 60 percent. So for me, the decision to give it up was, all right, let me just see what my life could be like if I gave it a shot, if I didn't drink. And execute it on the job and see how well I did. In that three months, Charles, after I gave up that drinking on that faithful day, I made more money than I made in the previous nine months combined. And not even, not even close, right? Just blew it out of the water. And that, for me, helped me recognize there was something there, which then put me on a journey to start like researching and reading, which then helped me understand all this stuff about drinking that I didn't know before that I wish I would have known. And then I started writing because I wanted to educate other people. I started to blog, alcohol is not your friend, ain't of, because I really just wanted to educate others on all the dangers of alcohol that we often don't learn about. We often learn of two dichotomies. Either you're an alcoholic or you don't have a problem with drinking. It's, it's like two ends of the spectrum, not recognizing there's a huge gray area that we're all on in a spectrum. And there's a lot of negatives that have nothing to do with being an alcoholic. You may never become a quote unquote alcoholic or develop alcohol use disorder, but alcohol is still negatively affecting your life. And I wanted to educate people on that, which is why I started writing and then why I ultimately wrote the book Bamboozle. I love that, Ken. And it's interesting leading up to the interview, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of the folks that we have on this podcast are recovering alcoholics, recovering addicts, recovering on the family side, but definitely identify as addicts and alcoholics in recovery. And I'm thinking, you know, what is a guy like Ken going to bring in terms of value to the audience. And it took about 12 seconds into our interview to realize a lot. And here's why. Number one, as you well stated, you do not have to be an addict or an alcoholic or somebody that has substance use disorder in order to benefit from becoming clean or sober. Number two, Like you said, it's on a spectrum. And in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it states very clearly that after AA got off the ground, you know, first it started with low bottom cases. That's where that's AA's roots was low bottom cases, really, really low bottom cases. But it wasn't super long that folks that were and this is a quote, mere potential alcoholics mm-hmm. were saving themselves years of potential misery by getting sober at that time. So this is something that at least some folks have understood, but not, I think, the greater population. Like you said, the greater population, I really believe you're an alcoholic or you're not. It's the way it is. One or the other. Either I have zero problem with drugs, alcohol, substance, or I'm an addict and an alcoholic and I need treatment and a 12-step program. So I think that's super instructive in the idea that one can recognize the cost that alcohol 
is exacting on their lives, on their wellness, and make a decision that this isn't serving me anymore. Mm -hmm. And if it's not serving me, what am I doing? What am I doing here? What am I, what am I doing here? And having that conversation with yourself to understand if alcohol or another substance or behavior isn't serving you. And sometimes look, you know, we, we can be aware of a cost that something exacts on us and be okay with it until we're ready or prepared to give it up. Yeah. Right. hundred um, percent. But I think it's instructive to have the conversation. Yeah. And I, so to your point, Charles, and I, I think that was very well said that it's, it's such a personal decision. And in the book, I, I, I just I don't demonize alcohol. That's not my that's not my giddy up. That's not my thing. It's not my slant. Sometimes people it's funny when I first stopped drinking and, and let's say a couple of years in, I would go out. People was like, oh, I'm going to have a drink. Are you OK with that? Like, yes, I'm OK. I don't, I don't care. Like, what does right. your drinking have to do with me? Like, you can drink all you want to. I have nothing to do with that. But for me, it's a personal decision for you to decide is alcohol serving you? And and as I to your point, like for me, the purpose of the book and bamboozled and why I want to help so many people through the book, if possible, is that I just want people to look at it. If yeah. you look at it, I see people. If you, I see a lot of the sober literature out there, the quit lit, as they call it. And yeah. to your point earlier, a lot of times or sometimes for even what I read, it's it, it painted a picture of you having to hit some kind of rock bottom of you having some major issue where you woke up and you didn't know where you were or you got a bunch of DUIs or you weren't being a parent. To your... People would read these book charts and say, well, I don't see myself. That's not people, me. So <laughs> yeah. that's not me. I don't have to worry about it. So what? So I'm clearly I'm good. Right. So that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to show people. Let's talk about all these other things that are how they're affecting you through the stories in the book that you don't often hear about. And to your point, if you're not careful and you continue on this trajectory, you're not there yet, but you could potentially become an alcoholic down the road. And I think that's a real that's a realistic possibility for all of us if we're not careful. And I just want the book to make people be more careful and look at it more closely. Without question. And I think those things and even look. I have a very colorful, active addiction career, OK? And many would look at mine and be like, whoa, I'm not as bad as that kid. Yet, can yet, I would sit in meetings at previous attempts at sobriety and think, I'm not as bad as that guy. Mm -hmm. Not as bad as that gal. So I must not have a problem. Yeah. So, you know, we could take that rationalization game pretty far in terms of comparing ourselves to others and then determining that our own relationship with alcohol or substances or addictive behaviors isn't a problem because that person's got the problem that's the standard of who has a problem yep. <laughs> and unless you're in prison and you know have eight dwis anything short of that is not having a problem and i think about the things that i see in terms of 
more severe consequences that I haven't, first of all, you know, but for the grace of God, I believe that. <laughs> there go I in, in many instances. Number two, those are my not yet. If I start drinking again, you know, those could be there for me. That's why I feel like those are my not yet. And I'm a huge believer that rock bottom is a myth. Right. Your bottom is when you stop digging. And the only true bottom is when we're dead. Anything short of that, we stopped digging. And we can stop digging real early if we want. Or we could dig a real big hole, right? And 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 folks do both. But I love the having I really love the idea of having an honest conversation about it. And That's not it. Demon, and, and to your point, not demonizing it. Not being temperance crusaders. We are not temperance crusaders here on the Way Out podcast. I tell people in my day-to-day life, I have no problem with other people drinking. If that's what you want to do and you feel okay about that and you feel like that's that's appropriate in your life, I don't judge other people. That's not my thing. I don't judge you for it. And uh, I am not one that thinks that it's my place or that it's a constructive activity to go on a temperance crusade. No, no, I've never been that way. And I'll take it a step farther, Charles, and this may be a little controversial for some people, but I honestly believe there is a time in your life to drink alcohol. You know, and so I, I don't have a problem. I think when you're young, when you're like 20, 21, 23, and you're just living life and you're trying to do things, I think there are some, po- I actually wrote an article about it where I think there are some positive effects of drinking alcohol and living your life when you're a certain age. But on the other side of that, I think there's an age and that age is 40 that I will say, I don't think anybody should drink anymore because of the the tremendous negative effects of alcohol after you eclipse 40 and you do so much more damage to yourself that I honestly don't believe any, you can do it, but I want to make people aware it is really damaging yourself after 40. Um, and to your point earlier about the hitting rock bottom and, and, and the, the possibility of people seeing like all the negative sides of alcohol, the thing that I often want to do instead of focusing on how bad things can get and how in and, and the comparison, I'm not like that person that sometimes you hear seeing quit lit. I try to focus on the other side, which is how great can you be? Like, what is the upside for you? What could you accomplish if you were willing to say, you know what? This is okay. I don't, my life isn't terrible with it, but what could my life be without it? And that's where I try to focus on with the book is looking forward, not back, and what you could accomplish versus how terrible your life would be with alcohol in it. I love that, Ken, because it really highlights what recovery and sobriety can enable us to do once we lean into it in a really meaningful way. One of the things I really love about your journey, Ken, is it very much sounds like you basically just ran an experiment and you said, you know what, I'm just going to try not drinking and really lean into my work and see what happens. If like it's not any better, then I'll go back and drink again, like no harm, no foul. Right. And I love that idea because it's actually really consistent with my own journey and Folks on this podcast know I'm a huge fan of Joe and Charlie. They did a series called 
the big book comes alive. And I say it took Bill and Bob to write the big book and Joel and Charlie to explain it. They kept saying, just run the experiment. Mm -hmm. Just run the experiment. Don't worry about the process. Don't judge it. Just do it to the best of your ability and see what happens. And look, if it doesn't work, we'll happily refund your misery. Okay. Okay. And so I did. I just turned off my brain for once. And I just ran the experiment, Ken. And amazing things began to materialize as I practiced abstinence and started working a program of recovery and really leaned into it. And it unlocked things in me I never thought possible. And to your point, like alcohol did serve me for a while. Okay. Mm -hmm. Life was pretty rough for me in my teenage and early 20s. And drugs and alcohol served me for a while. Okay. I don't know what I would have done without them because I was a mess and I was dealing with some really, really big stuff that I didn't have the tools to deal with. I look back on that period of my life and that version of myself with a lot of self-compassion. Yeah. And then at some point, it stopped serving me. Yeah. And I kept wanting it to serve me, but it wasn't. That I went pretty far with it. And I was fortunate enough to reach a point where I was able to have my own moment of reckoning and surrender and then be willing to run this experiment like you did. Yeah. Different places, different bottoms. And that's okay because that's how our journeys are when it comes to sobriety. They're on a spectrum. But it then began to really unlock something. And I did therapy too. I did EMDR therapy in conjunction with a 12-step program of recovery. And those two things in parallel unlocked my recovery, right? And so tell me, Ken, about what this experiment of sobriety unlocked for you. So it, basically everything. And I, I love the way you put it because that's exactly what it was. And to your point, I said never in when I said that I was going to stop drinking for and I said at the time, I think I said initially 30 days, Charles, it was never, never was it forever. I had ne I had never in my mind thought this was going to be a forever thing. But to your point, 30 days go by all of a sudden. I'm sleeping better. I'm thinking better. I, I I don't have the mornings. I'm waking up every morning at five o'clock and I'm able to bang out work like a madman. And all of a sudden, I just started seeing positive things happen. Now, could it be coincidental? Maybe it's coincidental, but it happened around the time that I decided to stop drinking. All of a sudden, and just to give you some context, I was in staffing, sales staffing, helping people get jobs, right? So some, there is a little bit of very, uh, there's a little bit of happenstance in regards to what works. But for me, when I was doing the job and when I stopped drinking, 
it felt like things were just falling into place for whatever. People were accepting jobs, whereas people weren't accepting jobs before. All of a sudden, I was getting calls back from managers where I wouldn't get calls back before for managers. So maybe it was just the grace of God of just things falling together in a good manner, but I felt like something was there. So after that 30 days, sleeping better, thinking better, things working out better, why don't we do 60 days? So I was like, let's extend another 30 days. This is good. 30 days, 60 days come, and I'm like, Dude, it it feels like it's a snowball effect and it's exponential. Not only is it just not getting better day by day, but it feels like quantum jumps a little bit. Whereas as I go from week to week, month to month, I look back on who I was a little while ago and I'm like, man, this is like something is happening here. So then once I got to 90 days and I had made a crap load of money, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to keep this going for a while. And around that time, there was a book, uh, Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, I read. Uh, Me and my wife were taking a trip to Ireland, and I had a six and a half hour flight. I opened up the book, the digital version of the book, and I just started reading, and my mind was blown. And and why my mind was blown, Charles, was everything that we kind of talked about that I did not know. I thought if I was an alcoholic, then then alcohol isn't really hurting me. But as Annie walked through how alcohol creates the need for itself, it's almost amazing that more people aren't alcoholics when you think about how alcohol works so well as a drug and how if you, how it negatively affects your ability to emotionally, we talked about arrested development earlier, emotionally to deal with so many things because what alcohol does is the Band-Aid. It doesn't allow you to solve the problem. It just puts the Band-Aid over the problem so you don't really deal with the real problem. And I just started thinking, Charles, of all the different ways and and relationship situations I've had and uh, this that I had and anxiety. Like like most people, I I had not, not that I was anxious around a lot of people, but there were certain situations that I didn't feel 100% comfortable. And I will always put salt on it with, with, with alcohol. Whenever I was in certain situations, I would get alcohol and I would that would make me feel better. And I didn't recognize that not only was that alcohol not giving me the ability to overcome that situation and, and cre- decrease my, ancient, my anxiety, but it was actually causing my anxiety. And so all of this, these different lessons then helped me say, Okay, I'm sleeping better. I'm really now because I'm not drinking, I'm dealing with these uncomfortable situations in the moment and I'm really doing the hard work to overcome them as opposed to just drinking and ignoring them. And then I, I can just think better, which was the big thing for me. I think there's something here. And I think that and I told my wife on the flight, I remember we were on the flight and I said, babe, because lucky, I will say this. My wife, she quit the same day I did. I said, hey, babe, I think because we, we were we were we were best friends. We we're drinking partners. And I told her I was thinking about stopping drinking. She said, hey, you know what? I think I'm drinking a little bit too much, too. If you do it, I'll do it with you. Boom. And we both stopped on the very same day. And I was like, babe, I'm not sure if I'm going to go back to drinking. But I, I tell you what, after reading this book, there's a chance I might not. And then four and a half years later, here we are. I love that, Ken. And such an instructive message and really mirrors my own experience around the reality that I poured alcohol on a lot of things in order to get through them. And 
that was not serving me. Again, there was a time that it did serve me because I didn't have the tools. And I believe that it allowed me to be able to survive some really traumatic experiences. That said, for decades, it was a counterproductive behavior. And what it did is it prevented me from developing healthy coping strategies and healthy behaviors in order to get through adversity because I just poured alcohol on it. I'm uncomfortable at a party, pour alcohol on it. Had a fight with the girlfriend, pour alcohol on it. Had a bad day at work, pour alcohol on it. Need to get up for something and be the life of the party? Insert alcohol. I used it for all sorts of things as a substitute for being able to develop those things in and of my own self. And in recovery, in unlocking my recovery, as I described before, gave me and continues to give me the opportunity to practice getting through day-to-day life through healthy behaviors and coping strategies. And I say practice because I'm not good at it at the beginning and Mm -hmm. kind of feeling my way out, but I'm able to avail myself of so such a rich treasure trove of experience through other people in my 12-step program and through this podcast and through so many other sources to be able to add that into my program of recovery to give me a myriad of tools that I can use today to get through the things that I need to get through and to really be able to, as we said at the top, become closer and closer to the people we feel called to be. Yeah, yeah. It, it, when you described the, the, the we could have talked about it earlier, the, the arrested development, like you thought you were an adult, but you weren't because you didn't recognize all these things that you were putting on the back burner that you weren't even looking at yeah. because of alcohol. You were really diving into them. Um, and then when you gave it up, you gave yourself the ability to do it. And I, I have a question for you in regards to that, because this is what I experienced. And I'm guessing everyone did. And you you hit the nail on the head that I often want to be clear messaging. When you give up alcohol initially, it's going to feel like the world is your oyster and everything is doing this. And you're like, holy schmoly, life is fantastic. And then at some point, like with anything, your body hits equilibrium and it starts to level off a little bit. And then what happens is. Because now you're facing all the things that you used to use alcohol for. Now you have to really deal with them. You may even feel this a little bit because, like you said, when you first started dealing with these things, you were not good at it. 
When I first went to that party, a networking event, and I didn't have alcohol, you know how awkward I was in that situation and how uncomfortable I was when I had a first argument with uh, my or disagreement with someone and I had to be in that conversation and not just kind of lay lays over and that like we're not really going to talk, but we really got to dig into it. It was uncomfortable. So alcohol does stopping drinking alcohol does not solve all your problems. It does not. But it gives you the emotional fortitude to develop the skills to then start working on solving those problems. And my question to you is, because I don't know a lot about the recovery community in in general, but do you think that's part of the reason sometimes people do relapse? Because everything seems so great at, at, at first and then they kind of come back to reality and they're like, Holy smokes, life is life is better without alcohol, but it's not that much better. Actually, now I feel a little bit worse because all these things I was using alcohol for, now I got to really deal with them. So then they find themselves going back to it. Without question. That's a big part of it. And look, the reality is, and it was for me, we call it a pink cloud early in recovery mm-hmm. for a reason. And I experienced that, too. And I've actually experienced that multiple times at multiple attempts in recovery. I physiologically am supposed to feel better once I stop putting toxins in my body on a regular basis. That makes sense. (laughs) When I stop ingesting toxins on the daily, I'm going to physically feel better. And if you're in a program of recovery like I am, I'm connecting with people Alcoholism and addiction is a disease of loneliness and isolation in large part. So that reconnection feels really good. And being able to relate to other people that thought like I thought, felt like I felt, did what I did and were getting better, that feels really good in the beginning. So this combination of reconnecting to humankind and the absence of regular toxins in my body. It feels great, but then life starts to get lifey. <laughs> and I don't have any tools, but I have to feel it all in real time. And I have to sit with uncomfortable emotions. And I don't know how to do it, and I don't like it. And I get restless, irritable, and discontent. And I get the itch to want to escape it because I don't know how to deal with it in any other way. And that's when relapse or recurrence, however you want to phrase it, is a real possibility and happens to a lot of people. For me, working the 12 steps in order and doing EMDR therapy was the secret combination to get me past that. Mm. Because both of them gave me real tools to be able to sit in that uncomfortable emotion, not revert back to a counterproductive thought or behavior pattern, and then do something different. So... Instead of wanting to go to the liquor store or pick up a drink or go to the bar, I'd go to a meeting and I would connect with other people in recovery. I would listen to a recovery podcast. I would call somebody in recovery. 
So it was less about not doing something that's bad for me. Mm-hmm. And it was more about replacing those counterproductive thought and behavior patterns with positive ones. I started walking on a regular basis with my recovery dog, Louie. That felt good. Mm-hmm. I started a podcast that felt good. I started volunteering and being of service in and out of the recovery community. That felt good. So I was replacing these negative thought and behavior patterns with positive thought and behavior patterns. I would read some quitlet. It was using tools and strategies. That's it. You know, to be able to do something different rather than just not do. I can't just not do for any length of time. Nature abhors a vacuum, right? I'm just going to sit here and not drink. (laughs) Without a doubt, Charles. I mean, you hit the nail on the head because I tell people in the book and whenever I'm messaging, I just want to be clear. Alcohol does not solve all your problems. And I want to be clear, there could be a point where things will feel worse than they yes. did before. Yes. So it, it's important to know that's coming. So when it comes, you're ready for it. Because if it catches you off guard, it's going to be hard. And then the second thing you said is where I'm 100% with you, trying to white knuckle it and discipline it through, it doesn't work. You cannot just, i am got the discipline to not do it. You need strategies and substitutes. That's what I tell people. Yes. you got to have strategies and substitutes. And we talk about it in the book where you have to have things that you do that take you away from drinking. Because if you just sit there and say, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to not drink, you're going to think about drinking. <laughs> so you have to do it. So, we, so there's a concept in the book called the meds and it's called m-e-d-s that stands for four things that it's a strategy that i give people to help you overcome drinking are you cool if i kind of walk through that like that okay so m stands for mechanical engineering and re-engineering right and what that means is what you hit on when you was like i was reading quit lit so when you stop drinking your mind and i often tell people you can start m the first process of the meds and you can keep drinking like you don't have to stop drinking to do M because the reason I say keep drinking because M is about just start reading about what alcohol does to you. You just have to start educating yourself, start reading books and start understanding what are, are all these people saying like William Porter and Craig Beck and the Annie Graces. What are all their books saying about alcohol? So read all of that, start digesting that and start getting your mind to think differently about alcohol. Start questioning the alcohol. And I tell people the reason I'm okay with you drinking when you start the first step of the process is because I think that I want you to take a look when you're in the moment and assess yourself. Are you experiencing what the authors told you would happen? Prime example, I, as crazy as it seems now, I did not make the connection that when I woke up at two or three o'clock in the morning and couldn't go back to sleep, that that had anything to do with alcohol. I just I thought it was just because I was a terrible sleeper and and I didn't make the connection. But then I started reading. I was like, are you serious? All this time, I could have got a good night's sleep if I just didn't drink a whole six pack of beer the night before. Right. So look at yourself and see. So once you start getting your mind to think differently, because it has to happen in the inside before it can happen in the outside. Then we go to eat. 
E stands for exercise commitment. And the reason I say that's so important is for a few reasons. One, the one of the biggest things you're going to have when you stop drinking is time. It's just you didn't realize how much time you spent drinking before. So when you stop drinking, you're going to have so much free time on your hands. You're going to need something to fill it. As you said, when you got a vacuum, if you don't fill it, something else, the alcohol could potentially go in there. So exercise will give you something to do with all this extra time you have. But the other side of it is the practical side of the alcohol. One, you no longer have that that uh, artificial dopamine spike from alcohol. You need something that can help replace that. Exercise is one of the few things that can also give you somewhat of that dopamine spike that you are getting with alcohol. And then three, it just naturally helps reduce your cravings. When you exercise on a consistent basis and you find another outlet for your energy and your desire, it's going to reduce your desire to even have exercise. Then we go to D. D stands for diet improvement. Now, the reason I couple these two together, Charles, is because for me, I truly believe if you can see an external representation of what's happening internally, it becomes a natural motivator for you to continue on your path. And one of the things that if you start exercising and you're trying to either like lose weight or get toned or whatever, if you don't eat good food, you might not change at all. You're going to still be the big or the big person or you're not going to get any muscle or you're still going to you're not going to see that external representation. So I believe eating better allows you to see the lose weight or whatever you want to do. But if someone's like, man, Charles, you look good. Look how strong you are. It's going to be that little extra motivation for you to continue. So I tell people diet improvement in combination with exercise will give you some sense of changing externally or physically to represent the change internally. And then there's the, the other aspect is that there's the good folates from um, from certain food, B1 food, it, it just makes you feel better naturally. It increases your, your dopamine, your pheromones, makes you feel better. And then the last part, and to me, this is the most important part, is S. And this is what you talked about, that it, it's a strategy. It's not something that you do just because you want to. It's a strategy to keep you sober. S stands for success seeking. And the reason that's so important is because when you stop drinking, Charles, you've given yourself a gift. That gift, it now you've given yourself the ability to do things that you never could have done before. Now, if do you want to just, in my opinion, waste your sobriety or alcohol consciousness by sitting on the couch all day and watching Netflix? Or do you want to put your renewed ability and cognitive ability to use to do some good in the world, to do something that you could have never done before. Because once you get on that journey and you start trying to climb and do things that you never could have done before, you're gonna recognize there's no way you can go back to the person you were before and continue on the journey that you started. So that journey, that success, those goals, become a kind of safe haven, if you will, that keeps you from ever wanting to go back because you know the old version of yourself will no way be able to do what you're doing now. So it becomes something that keeps you sober and keeps you in a good spot. And if you put all those together, in my opinion, man, it's going to be really, really hard to go back once you give it up. I love that, Ken, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is a big part of my sustained recovery is because I've been able to build a life that I love to live and that I don't 
feel like I'm missing anything when it comes to uh, drugs and alcohol, right? And so the idea of using strategies to be able to build a daily routine that creates a life we want to live. Why would we get and stay sober if it sucks <laughs> and we feel terrible? We wouldn't. We'd be like, I'm going to go back to drinking. Yes. Because at least it gave me moments of reprieve. At least I got an hour or two a night of reprieve from my crappy life. And so I love that. And I'm a huge fan of self-care. Yeah. I'm a big advocate of daily physical activity for everyone, but especially for those of us who are on a sobriety and recovery journey. It's huge. It's been key and instrumental in my recovery is daily and regular physical activity. And it doesn't have to be the same for everyone. It doesn't have to be going to the gym if you're not mm -hmm. a gym rat. It doesn't have to be walking like I do. It could be jogging. It can be basketball. It can be tennis. It, whatever it is for you, find something that you really enjoy doing that's also physically active that you could do on the regular. And it's going to transform your recovery. And I love the nutrition piece because if we feed our bodies well, we're going to feel well. Exactly. And we can give ourselves some grace in the beginning. I think, you know, when we quit alcohol, sugar's a thing, right? And sugar still all is the sugar you yeah. want because you have to 100%. You got like, look, Charles, I just got over sugar probably about a year ago. I'm not yeah. even that it was. But I tell people. If that's going to keep you from drinking alcohol, you eat all the cake you want. <laughs> For real. That's real. And so give yourself some grace on that, right? Eat your vegetables, eat healthy, and give yourself some grace on the sugar because that's what alcohol was in large part was sugar. <laughs> right. That's it. It was intoxicating sugar is that's what it was, right? So, But it also mirrors to me the stages of change in large part, you know, your M is really pre-contemplation and contemplation and preparation. You're doing those stages of change when you're listening to the quit lit, you're identifying, you're evaluating your own relationship with alcohol and you're moving from a pre-contemplation, which is, I ain't even thinking about it to, Hmm. Mm, Maybe I'm thinking about this to I'm getting ready maybe to make a change here. And then your EDNS are all about action and maintenance. That's it. And so these steps are really consistent with tried and true methodology around how we change and sustain change. And we're not going to sustain something that sucks. Human beings can only do something that is terrible for a finite period of time. This goes back to what you were referencing earlier. Discipline is finite. Yes. Self-control is finite. Self-will is finite. 
we can only do it for a finite period of time before we revert back. But if we're able to create a life that we really want to live that doesn't include alcohol, doesn't include substances, doesn't include addictive behaviors, we're far more likely to sustain it. And to your point, the S, the success part, seeking success, not for success itself, but to do some good in the world. And I love that you said that because I really believe that recovery has enabled me to be able to reconnect to myself, to my higher power and to other people, and then to rediscover and discover my gifts, talents, and abilities and use them for good. Mm -hmm. And that, Ken, is the whole ball game. When we're able to really lean in to why we're here on this planet. We all have them. We all have innate gifts, talents, skills, and abilities. And when we're able to lean into them and use them for good, nothing feels better. I love it. I love. I'm. T- I'm telling you. And it, to me, and I tell people like all the steps are important, but to, to the success seeking one is the one that's going to keep you where you need to be and get you keep you focused on the future because it's a, it's a gift. I, there, there's something called the wallet analogy that actually my my guy Jeff Graham from Back to Zero podcast he get he so I'm going to give him credit for this analogy, but I, when he said it because he used it, I was like, man. I'm going to steal that. It's so good. So the wallet <laughs> analogy is this, right? So let's say you're walking down the street, walking down where whatever city you're in, and some guy comes up to you with a knife or or not not even a knife, just a big dude, a big strong dude, and he's like, "Give me your wallet right now," right? And in your wallet, let's say you got your wallet in your pocket, you don't have any. There's no money in your wallet. There's no credit cards in your wallet. There's no pictures of your family in your wallet. There's nothing in your wallet that in any way you care about, right? So. Could you fight this guy? You could fight him, maybe. But who can, it's a wallet. Like, there's nothing in it. It's probably easier. Who knows? This guy might have a gun. He might have a knife. You'll probably just hand your wallet over. Like, hey, here's your wallet. Here's my wallet. Go, good riddance. Please don't hurt me. But if this guy comes up to you, big dude, and he's like, give me your wallet. And in your wallet, you got all your money, a bunch of money. You got all your credit cards. You got your IDs. You have pictures of your family. You got letters from your kids that you can't give back that you can't get back if he takes your wallet and you're looking at this guy and you're like, I might not be able to take this guy, but I'm not just going to let him take my wallet that easy. Right. And success seeking is packing your wallet full of things that you're just not going to let any old thing or any quick one moment of the weakness take away from you. So it makes your sobriety. It puts a chain around it because you're, you're, when you put so much work and effort into becoming this best version of yourself, it's like that wallet full of all of these precious things that when someone comes to take it away, you're not going to give it up unless you get put up one heck of a fight to keep it. And that's what it's about. I love that. That's such a great analogy. And it really reminds me of the difference between short-term 
momentary pleasure seeking mm-hmm. versus long term sustainable reward from you know building a healthy life and really creating a meaningful life a life that you don't want to give up yeah. for a moment of pleasure yeah yeah and that was what my life was like before like i like my life was fine it was cool but to your point it wasn't any i wasn't building anything that was somewhat of a legacy i didn't feel like i wasn't building anything that i could look back on and, and feel i was very very proud of it i was very much in the moment doing what felt good versus making sometimes tough decisions because of what i wanted in the future um so yeah i just i i couldn't agree more charles i just think it's a good um representation of when you're giving up alcohol you're thinking about your long-term future and i actually have this concept in the book called decadeism which is just around because i often say man, I wish I would have stopped drinking 10 years earlier. I wish I would have been 28 instead of 38. But then my thought process is if you stop drinking because of how terrible alcohol is for you, you're probably going to live a lot longer than you would have lived if you did did keep drinking. So who cares that you didn't do it when you were 20 or whatever? You're going to live so much longer now, you can still do some amazing things because you've given yourself more rope on the other end. So start working and creating a life to do something amazing for the world and give back. So it's like it's like a full circle of stopping drinking, living longer. You're only as old as you feel now. Feel young and go do something amazing because you stopped drinking and giving yourself that the capacity and cognitive ability to actually go do it. Absolutely. And I love your story. Really isn't this super low rock bottom story, which, by the way, those are amazing. Yeah, those are amazing. I love a great freaking comeback. <laughs> yes. I, I freaking love that. Like mine got pretty dang hairy. OK, you know, and I'm making a heck of a comeback. Love it. And so I love that. But I also love that yours was I'm just kind of getting by like it's okay it's not great it's not terrible I'm just kind of sliding on by in having this recognition that I don't have to just slide by and accept sort of mediocrity I can have that honest reckoning with my relationship with in your case alcohol but it could be any addictive substance or behavior and say, this isn't serving me. What would happen? Asking that question. What would happen if I didn't? What would happen if I stopped? Who could I be if I stopped? What could I be capable of if I stopped? What could I contribute to the world? If I stopped those kinds of questions. And if you can ask yourself those kinds of questions and it motivates you to maybe want to find out, then 
Maybe you want to pick up Bamboozled, How Alcohol Makes Fools of Us All and really discover what you could be if you stopped drinking or using substances or engaging in an addictive behavior. So, Ken, before we get to our closing questions, what do you hope folks get out of your book, Bamboozled, How Alcohol Makes Fools of Us All? Honestly, Charles, just education. That, that, that is my goal. My goal is not to make people or to stop people from drinking. My goal is always just to make sure people's eyes are open to the, this, to the trade-offs they're making when they decide to drink. It's about enlightenment. It's about awareness. It's about you to understand what you're giving up. So I want to show you what your life could be without it show you what the, the some of the negative ways it affects you. And then at the end of the day, red or blue pill, you make the decision. But I want to make sure you make that decision fully aware of what all the trade-offs could be with it. So I love it because it affords you to make an informed decision and recognize what you may be sacrificing at the altar of alcohol or whatever addictive substance or behavior may be in your life. That's great. And again, I, I lied because I do have one last question before we get to our closing questions, which is you made mention about how differently alcohol affects one after turning 40. Yeah. Enlighten us about that. Yeah. So there's a lot of things. Well, we all know naturally after you turn 40, your body's different, right? Where there's so many different things that you've always heard of, right? Your eyesight doesn't work as well. Uh, your muscle mass doesn't work as well. It's just natural. Alcohol hurts you because of a few things. One, your body, it doesn't hold, retain water as well, as well. It's just natural when you hit that age. So when you're drinking, Alcohol hits you much quicker than what you may have thought you could handle before. So this is part of the reason you see a lot of people that they're an older age. They used to drink with no issue. And all of a sudden now they're doing crazy things because they've been because their body has changed and their water retention isn't the same. The second part, it just has to do with your, the nature of your body, and your liver. I use a car analogy like your liver doesn't your kidneys don't work as well as they did before. And let's use your liver that, of course, that is it's cleaning out the acetaldehyde of the alcohol in your body. But it's a lot older at 40 than it was at 20. And I use the car now analogy of a car. You could take a, a brand new car and do a bunch of donuts in, in a dry parking lot. That brand new car is probably going to be OK. You probably shouldn't do it. That brand new car is probably going to be okay. You take a 20-year-old car and go in the parking lot and try to do a crap load of donuts, you might break something. So what happens with alcohol is just natural. Quick net with your young version, it's going to filter that alcohol out of your body. The acetaldehyde, the carcinogens of alcohol, we all know it's a carcinogen. It filters it out fastly and quickly. But as you're older, it doesn't work as well. So that carcinogen is sitting in your body a lot longer and it's increasing your chances of getting cancer way exponentially more than when you were in your 20s. And it's just things such as that that just if, if you think about the, the risk you're taking once you hit that age versus before, it's definitely not worth 
the, the effects that has happened on you. That totally makes sense. And I think that's super instructive because I definitely at age 45 in the last few years for sure hit that wall, as it were. It was just a big difference in the way my body responds to injury, the way that it responds to all sorts of things that we encounter in daily life that's much different after 40 than it was before 40. Absolutely. And alcohol is another one of those things, Charles, without a doubt. Think of you drink now. Think about like what, how you would feel if you did what you did in your 30s now. It would be crazy. Ken, seriously. <laughs> yes. Seriously. That would be a train wreck. And people do it. Total train wreck, man. It's crazy. 100%. That's a hard pass. Yes. <laughs> hard pass. Ken, are you ready for our closing question? I am ready. What does your daily or regular recovery, wellness, routine consist of? Wake up 4.30. I'm an early riser. Uh... Hit the gym first thing. It's a 60-minute work into at the gym just to get the pheromones going, get that positive um, aspect of it going side of my day. Then I come home, and typically I do a few things. I write. I like to write down my goals. In my mind, I, I'm big on writing down five goals of things I want to achieve in the next five years. It's a little corny, but I've been doing it for probably the last three years now, about four years, probably ever since I stopped drinking and it makes a difference. I write that every day. Um, typically, if it's a writing day for me, I like to write like a blog, my mind for about 30 minutes. And then I just meditate. I meditate for about two minutes every morning, just a simple timer out meditation just to kind of get my mind right. Um, then after that, I go, I go to go to the job and, and get to get the work done. But that's it. Exercise, writing, a little meditation, and I get to get, go to work. I love that, man. That's a great recipe for a tremendous daily recovery and wellness routine. It's got physical activity in there. It's got mindfulness and meditation in there, which I think is very spiritual as well. And it's got purpose in there being that you are writing out your goals and purpose is a big part of a meaningful and enduring recovery. That's awesome. Yeah. What book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? You definitely know it. This naked mind, Andy Grace changed my life. I tell anybody I couldn't do it. I say enough about Annie's that book and her um, impact on my life. It was, it, it was, it felt palpable when I was reading that book because I felt internally that something was going to be different after that. That's tremendous. It's a fantastic offering in the quit lit space and really transformational in many ways for all of the ways that you said in terms of it not having to be this crash and burn scenario in order to reckon with your relationship with alcohol and I always add substances or addictive behaviors and understand if they are serving you. Ken, what is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery thus far? I think so I listen to a bunch of podcasts over the time and I think this is probably this is probably one of the Annie's too. 
It's about, and, and you just said it, give yourself grace. You, you, you're not going to be perfect. I, I love when Annie would say in her, her podcast, um, when she would talk about, hey, all right, you didn't drink. You, you, you've been drinking for the last 10 years and then you stop for 90 days. And then all of a sudden you had one bad moment and you drink. But you just went 90 days without drinking at all. And you drink one day out of 90 days. So that's like an 80, uh, a 95 point percent sobriety. Like you don't don't beat yourself up because you had one bad day. Just get right back on the horse and keep it going. So it's like just have grace. Like don't beat yourself up. I And I have this statement that I put on my blog. You only lose the battle when you stop trying. As long as you keep trying, you don't have to be perfect. You're going to fall off the horse. You're going to make some mistakes. As long as you keep dust yourself off, keep getting back up and keep trying to learn and go, you never lose the battle. You always got a shot. Like someone says, you only have to be the success one time. And that's the last time to be an ultimate success. So you only have to achieve the be successful the last time and you're a success. That's all that matters. I love that. And I really believe that that self-compassion, self-forgiveness, giving ourselves grace around our progress in sobriety and recovery is really key. And I tell sponsees that. I tell folks that I coach that. Yourself some grace. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to make some mistakes. You've been doing it this way for many, many years, and it's going to take some time to get on your ultimate path. And one slip doesn't mean that everything prior to that point is wasted. That's garbage. That's baloney. All of that helped you. All of that is still very much a part of your recovery journey. And that's why on the front end, we ask if somebody, if if you keep a recovery date or not, because some people don't, and that's okay, because it doesn't serve everyone. Mm-hmm. Because maybe you do slip, and you don't want to have to feel like, well, I threw it all away. I mean, that's ridiculous. No, you didn't. And to your point, so I stayed sober for 90 days and I drank one night. That's that's a tremendous success rate. Absolutely. So so 90 out of 91 days, you stayed sober, right? That's great. Celebrate it, 100%. I love it. Ken, what's the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? It's probably sugar. Yes, soon. Dude, look, Charles, you have no idea. All right, so I will tell you this. Before I stopped drinking, I never ate sweets. When I used to drink, never ate sweets because it doesn't mesh well with alcohol. Sweets and alcohol, ice cream, it doesn't mesh well. So when I stopped drinking, I was like, I got to do something. And I started eating pies, ice cream, cake, cookies. It was it, like, and I'm not joking. I actually read um, 
the I can't think of the author's name, but Break Up with Sugar. Like I had to like I had to wean myself off of sugar yeah. almost in the same vein. Like I had to wean myself off alcohol because it was so it was so strong. But to your point earlier, when you first start, you absolutely need it. You you I I I have no qualms with it at all. But yeah, it was getting my sugar kind of I don't know if I, I would use the word addiction. But man, it was it was challenging there for a while. Like I said, I I am once just to be completely transparent. It's within the last year that I felt that I got to a good place where I can kind of control how much I eat from a sugar perspective. So that would be it. That's real. Yeah, that's real. And I feel that on an intimate level, I too got a little out of control with the sugar. For a good while there. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you, when I was drinking, I considered myself somebody who didn't really like sugar that much, that didn't like ice cream that at all, like never craved it, never craved sugar. Why? To your point, number one, sugar and alcohol don't really mix that well. They don't, they and two, alcohol is sugar. It was already hitting that button. Like it, yeah. I was smashing the bejesus out of my sugar button with alcohol. Of course, I didn't want sugar outside of that, you know, and then I quit. And it was like ice cream and like uh, cookies and like all of it, man. It was Charles, crazy. Charles, I ate it. I used to eat entire pie. I'm not talking. <laughs> I'm not talking these small. I'm not talking these small personal size pies. I'm talking a, this is for a family at Thanksgiving dinner pie. I'm eating by myself. It was a joke. I was I would joke with my fiance too, girlfriend at the time that I'd be doing lines of Rice Krispie bars, not bars, uh, yeah. not a bar. <laughs> I do a line, do a whole, just a whole line. Right? Like, who am I kidding? I'm going to take this whole line right here. Okay. <laughs> and I'm grateful that, I'm in a much better place with sugar today than I was. And to your point, like give yourself some grace on it. Same with smoking. If you're a smoker or a vapor and nicotine, I carried nicotine into my sobriety and recovery like six months. And then it became out of control. I had to stop. And I did. Um, And I'm grateful that I was able to. It is a process. process. I couldn't quit like everything at once. That's ridiculous. Baby steps. And honestly, if you think about where you talked earlier about steps to success and, and accomplishing goals, you you increase your chances of being successful when you don't try to do it overnight like that. Baby steps. Then stack them over That's time. It. Yeah. And then get, give yourself some confidence. You know, I was able yep. to be abstinent and sober for a good stretch, like six months. I was like, okay, now it's time to address my nicotine addiction. Right? Mm-hmm. And then it was time to address my relationship with sugar, right? Mm-hmm. So That's the process. It. I love it. Ken, what's your greatest success in recovery thus far? Um, I would probably say the relationship with my wife. Um, I mean, she's my best friend. She did it with me. I, I, I don't I would say this, if she, could I have done it without her? Maybe, but would it have been as amazing as it was without her? There's absolutely no way. So our relationship is stronger now than it ever was before. We've been together for six and a half years, um, married almost for four. 
Um, and yeah, it's just, I think going through that together made us even stronger as a, a, bit, a deeper bond than we had before. And I'm, I'm just extremely happy and proud of our relationship. And I know my sobriety or alcohol consciousness is, is at a, a root of that foundation of that. That's absolutely beautiful. And what a gift of sobriety. Yeah. 100%. The, the next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Um, let me think about that one. You know, I, I've, I've, mm, forgiven myself or someone else for. It's hard to say. Like I, I'm always trying to just be as straight up about stuff that I can. Um, that is a hard one, Charles. I don't know. You if can, I can say do. nothing, and that is yeah. That's real. Like we can live a life that doesn't include that. Yeah, that I doesn't don't, right. I mean, I I don't think I'm harboring anything. Now, I would say if you had said that, I had a situation with one of my former friends that I felt like stabbed me in the back and we didn't talk for four years because of it and we just talked like two months ago and now we're like all good so had you asked me that question two years two months ago i would say this friend who i think stabbed me in the back and i could never forgive him but now we're past it and we're in a good spot so other than that situation i i harbor no ill will towards anybody i don't i or i can't think of anything because i gotta be honest i I, I don't I don't I'm not hardcore myself. I forgive myself all the time because <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm, I'm good. There's nothing I can think of that I haven't forgiven myself for. If I've done a bunch of dumb stuff. Yes. Am I good that I uh, it's over and I'm done with it's over and done with not forgiving myself for it isn't going to change it. I love that. And that's actually really instructive because you talk about your friend and Sobriety gives you the ability and recovery gives you the ability and the opportunity to be able to have those kinds of transformations in relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been asking me about my sobriety because for him, he's at that place in his life in his 36 where you just got to be careful. That is the age that a lot of people start developing issues between like 35 and 45. Yeah. I think the average age of someone with alcohol use disorder is 41 years old because that window, 35 to 45, is can be very precarious. And that's where he is. So we've been having conversations about that because he's very curious. That certainly was for me at 36. So that fits. Mm-hmm. For sure. Last question, Ken. What song symbolizes recovery to you? Uh, yeah. Um. What is it? Uh, the, the, the Eminem lose yourself. What is it? You got one chance to lose yourself. Like, you know, take take you got an opportunity for your life. You got to take advantage of it. Like we don't get mulligans, people. Like if you just want to go through life and drink, you can. But if you want to give yourself the chance to build a life that you could have never imagined, like you said earlier, 90 days, give yourself a 90 day experiment and see what you can actually or who you can become. That's fantastic. Lose Yourself by Eminem. That's our first as far as a song recommendation on the Way Out podcast. So that's great. I'm a huge Eminem fan. So that that is tremendous. So check the show notes. 
right now for Ken's Quitlet recommendation, his best piece of recovery advice, a handy link to the amazing Lose Yourself by Eminem, as well as Ken's contact information and how to learn more about his book, Bamboozled, How Alcohol Makes Fools of Us All. Ken, thank you so much, brother, for sharing your journey to and through recovery to this point with us. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Charles. I really enjoyed it, my man. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.